Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Solvable. I'm Ronald Young Jr. The rational response to being asked to fight in a war is to go crazy. That, of course, is the voice of Pushkin co-founder Malcolm Gladwell. And I invited Malcolm back to Solvable because I've recently been thinking a lot about something I read that he published back in 2013, his book, David and Goliath. The subtitle is Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. It's a book that takes a closer look at events in which one outcome is greatly favored over another and discusses why sometimes those outcomes don't turn out as expected. This episode is a little different from our typical solvable in that we don't exactly solve a problem here. But in the spirit of the show, we're very optimistic in our discussion of a big idea. And as you listen, you'll begin to get a sense of exactly why we chose now to have this particular discussion. Imagine you're living in Britain in the late 1930s. Germany is preparing to attack your country. It's the start of the Second World War. The military is mobilizing. Preparations are being made for mass casualties. You're debating whether or not you should stay in the city or move to the countryside until the danger has passed. The British military command does a kind of projection of what they think is going to happen. And they think they're going to have 600,000 dead, 1.2 million wounded, and mass panic. They think that no one's going to go to work which means that all of industrial production in England will cease. They think that the army will be useless because the army will be spend all of its time trying to keep the civilians like from going nuts. They, they really think it's over. The fear and uncertainty in the air are palpable. But what are you going to do? Can you still go to work? What about friends and family? Will they be safe? What is going to happen to all of you? 
And I know these questions may feel familiar. It's just funny about how at different circumstances, in different times, we have very different responses to people who have this kind of psychological reaction of invulnerability. They can either be heroes or they can be chumps. While our responses to the fear of an impending battle and its immediate physical threats may be quite different from our responses to the fear of a global pandemic, there's a way in which they're actually kind of similar. Community approach. We've fallen so in love with the language of personal freedom and responsibility that we've forgotten the power of collective appeals to community. Here's my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell. We're going to examine the parallels and intersections of fear, vulnerability, and responsibility when it comes to war and a global pandemic. Malcolm, welcome back to Solvable. It's great to have you here once again. Thank you. So I want to tell you about the my earliest introduction to you. It was in 2013, and you were on the TED Radio Hour, and you were giving an interview with Guy Raz about your mm-hmm. book, David and Goliath, because you had just done a TED Talk on that. Uh, do you remember that? I do, yeah. Great. I, I liked it because, you know, as a self-proclaimed church guy, you gave a very different definition to David and Goliath, the battle, what actually happened. Uh, and I love yes. this book. I, I bought it. It's one of my favorites. I think it's, you know, a lot of people talk about Blink and Outliers and other books you wrote, but David and Goliath is by far my favorite. And I bought the book thinking I'm just going to get all these, you know, insights about, you know, underdogs and misfits and all that, which I did. And I thought it was going to be purely based on David and Goliath. But then I got to one chapter and it was chapter five. And a Canadian psychiatrist who wrote this book called The Structure of Morale named J.T. McCurdy talks about the bombings in Britain. Can you recount that? Yeah. Those, so this is, by the way, thank you for the kind words about David and Glad. David and Glad happens to be my favorite of all my books as well. So this is something that has always not just fascinated me, but puzzled people for a long time, which was at the start of the Second World War, the British knew that the Germans had a fleet of bombers, and they also knew the state of their defenses against bombers were such that there was nothing they could do to stop the Germans. Mm-hmm. So the first thing they did, of course, was they a lot of children who lived in London uh, were moved to the countryside. The second thing they did was they got the fire trucks ready for what would be, you know, all kinds of all kinds of the normal things. Mm-hmm. But more than that. They became convinced that the devastation would be such that the population of London would panic. And so they did things like they converted a whole series of buildings on the outskirts of London to psychiatric, makeshift psychiatric hospitals because they figured so many people would be traumatized. They assumed that some incredible percentage of the population of London would flee the city. They really worried that the war would be over. Mm -hmm. Panic in London would be such and would spread to the rest of the country, and people would see that the Germans could just come and bomb at will. And they thought, you know, this could be be it for us. They were terrified from top to bottom. So the bombing comes in the fall of 1940, the famous Blitz, right? And it uh, lasts about eight months, and the Germans come, you know, not every night, but there's one stretch where they come for 57 consecutive nights, and they drop 
tens of thousands of tons of high-explosive bombs on London. They damage a million buildings. They wipe out much of the East End. And the panic never comes. And nobody can believe it. They're like, what happened? Why is everyone... In fact, not only does the panic not come, but like after a little while, people get so over it that they start going back to their business. And, you know... They go to work, they go to the pubs at night, they party, they do all the things. Young people are on the, in the streets. And as you can imagine, every psychiatrist, social scientist, psychologist in England at the time is like driving around London saying, I am witnessing something that makes no sense, mm-hmm. right? We, we've terror, the Germans have terrorized the population of London. And there's like kids playing you know, football in the streets and there's couples like going dancing at night and there's people dancing, uh, drinking in pubs and the bombs are falling. It's this completely bizarre event to kick off the war. And so this British psychiatrist comes along, J.T. McCurdy, the guy you mentioned at the top, and he tries to explain what happened. And I think that's what, that's the thing it sounds like that drew your eye to that chapter. Yes. Yes, and 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 that's what gets me because when I read this, I thought about it all the time when I first read this, and this was back in 2013. I thought about it all the time, and I remember it, he divided them into three groups mm-hmm. to direct hits, and those are the people that are dead, people that just mm-hmm. didn't make it through the bombing. Then there were near misses. Those were people who were experiencing the devastation of the bomb but did not experience death, or even people who were uh, close to someone who experienced the devastation of the bomb, family member, whatever. Yeah. Then there were the majority of London experienced what he called remote misses, yes. which is mean you heard about the bomb a few feet over, you felt the rumbling, you felt the building shake, but you didn't experience any devastation. And one of the quotes that you wrote in the book was that the morale of the community depends on the reaction of the survivors. Because the majority of the community is experiencing remote misses, they have this experience of feeling invulnerable, as opposed to the people who experience near misses, who they actually have a a higher sense of fear or a higher sense of actual danger when the bombs fall. Yeah. So, yeah, he does this thing, which is in retrospect, I think it's incredibly brilliant. He says that your reaction to a traumatic event is a function of your proximity to it. Mm-hmm. So you're right. There's the people who are most proximate to a traumatic event are the ones who are killed by it. They're presumably the ones who are the most terrified in the moment before they died, but they're mm-hmm. dead, right? Yeah. They yeah. can't spread. We don't know how they felt. They can't spread their feelings. They have no impact. They're gone, right? Second group near misses, they're the ones who the bomb drops in the other room and they crawl out of the, the wreckage. Those people are traumatized. Like, there's no doubt about that. Like that's, that's like that's like you're in a car accident and your car is totaled and they take you out with the jaws of life, mm-hmm. right? That's, yeah. that's, your, that's your near miss, right? That'll if stay you, with you. Has that ever happened to you, by the way, Ron? You ever been in a car accident? Not like that. No, I have not either. I know some people who have, and man, that like that stays with you. That's like some serious. I actually have a personal near miss story, which is I, when I was a kid, and funny enough, this is not traumatic for me, but traumatic for my father. When mm-hmm. I was a kid, I was going hiking with my father in the winter on this gorge in Canada. 
and I'm about seven, and there's a sheer sheet of ice down the side of the gorge that runs mm-hmm. all the way to a frozen, not a frozen over, but a freezing cold, fast-moving river. I slip, slide down the side of the gorge. Yikes. And come to a halt six inches from this fast-moving rapids river, where had I gone six more inches, I would be dead, of course. Wow. My dad never got over that. He, he like, you know, he had to f- repel down the ice. And, like, I'm just sitting there six inches from the water on the ice, right? Yeah. That was, for him, that's a near miss. Like, and he would talk about that, you know, 40 years later, like it had just happened, right? Yeah. That's near miss. Yeah. Right? He's not— he's a, the remote miss, though, is the category that really interested McCurdy. And he said, if the bomb's across the street and you survive, your mm-hmm. response is not trauma but exhilaration. It's yeah. like you get a new lease on life. Can I read to you from McCurdy? Absolutely. Um, when we have been afraid that we may panic in an air raid, and when it has happened, and, and when we have exhibited to others nothing but a calm exterior and we are now safe— The contrast between the previous apprehension and the present relief and feeling of security promotes a self-confidence that is the very father and mother of courage. By the way, how much do you love the way these guys write? Oh, brilliant. There's no (laughs) – what what like practicing – today they would write that in some gobble – some like – some academic gobbledygook, and yeah. he's talking about the father and mother of courage. I love that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the rest of that passage, I think it, it starts, uh, you started in the middle, but it starts with, uh, we are all not merely liable to fear, but we also are prone to being afraid of being afraid, yes. which I always love because I've realized that most of the ways in which that I've, I've ever been afraid have always been the anticipation that was really killing yes. me. I think I've very much embraced this ideology because the idea of getting through the fear is kind of what J.T. McCurdy gets at when he talks about what happens with the British. He's basically saying, like, they got through the fear, and because the majority of them went through remote misses, it's all of a sudden like, I don't even need to be scared anymore. Yeah. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death. Oh, there you go. (laughs) I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That biblical line is about this very phenomenon, that what it says is— that the function of religious faith is to turn a near miss to a remote a remote miss, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that the danger is removed. There's you're still walking to the valley of death, but the idea is that God's with you. So you know it's it's not a it's it is no longer an occasion for panic and fear. It's something that you can see to the other side of. Oh, absolutely. That's my church moment too. I also hey hey, terms. we in here, man. It's Tuesday. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. Uh, so we're at that. We're at the end of the bombing. Um, mm-hmm. How does the courage of the English factor into the German plan? Because their goal was to break the English, and yes. when it didn't happen, how did courage factor into that plan? Well, so this is actually I talk a little about this in um, the Bomber Mafia. Oh, nice. My I like my that plug. Book. Yes. <laughs> um, the it's super interesting. The Germans also assume that the British will crumble. That's why they're doing this thing. No one had ever done this in the history of warfare before, large-scale um, aerial bombing of civilian populations. It was considered to be, first of all, no one had bombers before, but in, you know, in, the, in the wars of the 19th century, you fought armies. You didn't, you didn't slaughter civilians. 
But the Germans were like, oh, we think that if we bomb the civilians, we'll bring the entire country to its knees. We won't even have to fight their army. Doesn't happen, right? Brits come through fine. Then what do the Brits do? The, Brit, the Brits don't learn their own lesson. They, they have just been through an experience where, they, where people have proven to be a lot tougher and more resilient than they would have imagined. Yeah. And then they turn around, forget that, and try the same failed experiment on the Germans. And when confronted on this question, the head of the British Bomber Command, his, ba- his answer was basically, well, I don't think Germans are as tough as English people. Which is like, such an obnoxious British thing to say. He couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that we were dealing here with something fundamental about human beings, Mm -hmm. which is that our powers of courage and resilience, even foolhardy powers of courage and resilience, are just way more considerable than we would have imagined. We're not rational actors. Rationally, if you are living in London during the Blitz of 1940, you should leave London. Yeah. Are you kidding me? They're yeah. like, there's just no reason for sticking around. And yet people stick around. They're not rational. Yeah. It makes me think of the earliest days of the pandemic. Yeah. If we talk about the fear that I had early on and the way that I feel now, we know that those feelings are markedly different because like if you go back to the British and yeah. everything you said about what the British thought was going to happen to them and the ways in which they prepared at the beginning, very similarly, a lot of us were doing that same things at the beginning of the pandemic. But it feels like uh, in this case is especially if we start looking at the COVID statistics. So at the time of this taping out of a population of about 320 exactly. million Americans. Yeah. Over 40 million Americans have been infected by COVID-19. And of that over 40 million, about 720,000 have died. So it's about a 2% mortality rate, which means the majority of us have been experiencing remote misses here. 280, 280 million people are fine. I'm one of the 280 million. I, I don't think I got it. Or if I got it, I didn't even know I had it. Yeah. So like, you're, you're, you're right. The overwhelming number of Americans are people who had remote misses here. Yeah. I think that unfortunately, because there were so many remote misses, that there was a higher amount of preventable deaths that probably could have been missed if the people that had remote misses had continued the same practices. Now, I don't want this to become a conversation of everybody get masks and get immunizations. You know, I I understand that those are personal decisions. And I've done both because I feel like responsible for my community. But a lot of people haven't. And I think it's because of this phenomenon of invulnerability, i.e. COVID has come. It did not get me. It didn't get the majority of us. So we're good. Yeah. You don't have to be. F- yes. I, I. It's funny. I think it's a perfect illustration of what McCurdy is talking about. Let's compare two actors here. There is the person in East London in 1940 during the Blitz who has observed five people on their street had their houses destroyed by German bombs, and, you know, five of them died, and but their house is still standing, and their whole family is still alive. McCrory would say is, that person's a remote miss, and they're like, whatever, I'm fine, I survived, and they're the ones who are going to the pub, and they're the ones who are going dancing on a Saturday night, and those are the ones who just went about business as usual. Mm-hmm. Now, that person's response to the Blitz is probably best termed as irrational in that they're not out of the woods. The Germans are still coming night after night, but their psychological interpretation of their experience 
is one of invulnerability. Mm-hmm. That How is that person any different from the person who declines to get vaccinated today? I think it's exactly the same. Yeah. Only, I... only, only one difference. The person during the blitz who acted all in, you know, who, who, whose response was, I'm invulnerable, I'm fine, I'm going to go back to work, is considered to be heroic and a hero. Mm-hmm. The unvaccinated person today is considered to be a social shame. Now, for good reasons, but it's just mm-hmm. funny about how at different circumstances in different times, we have very different responses to people who have this kind of psychological reaction of invulnerability. They can either be heroes or they can be chumps. So the reason why I think that is, and you can help me with this, but the reason why I think that is, is because bombing feels more random than avoiding COVID. Avoiding bombing feels more random than avoiding COVID. Because with COVID, there's a lot of people that can do a lot of things right. Like there's studies that show that wearing a mask uh, helps Mm -hmm. prevent the spread of COVID. There's studies that show that getting immunized helps prevent the spread of COVID. There's studies that show that social distance helps prevent the spread of COVID. All of these things that help prevent the spread. And there's people that at every juncture have avoided those three things and still not gotten sick. Yeah. And uh, and I think those people that are in the remote miss category are somehow bolstering the numbers of people that feel invulnerable in a way that's actually spreading harm in a way that the bombing doesn't yeah. necessarily because it's still you could go to the pub and you could still get bombed even though you're not afraid but you could still get bombed yeah the other aspect of this is what what is your social responsibility here you can argue that in 1940 during the blitz you were actually not not reacting with panic is a fulfilling your social responsibility that it's a good thing that you behave in that mildly irrational way because you're in the middle of a war. You have to fight. I mean, you have to sacrifice. Fight. Social responsibility in terms of a contagious disease is the opposite, that mm-hmm. behaving with caution and being appropriately fearful is part of the way that we end diseases. So you end a war by being irrational. You end a pandemic by being rational. I love that. Right? <laughs> the You could even go further and just say that no soldier in wartime can do their job without being irrational. It's nuts, right? Say, say more. Well, you can't. You're asking someone to go out and, like, risk their life for some, I mean, meaningful cause, but, like, it's still abstract to them. Like, the rational response to being asked to fight in a war is to go crazy mm-hmm. and get, like, sent to a psychiatric hospital for the that's actually the rational response but but people don't yeah. do that Pro, you know and i'm glad they don't they go through some experience in wartime believe that they are a, a in the remote miss category and that's where courage mm-hmm. comes from um but the, so then is courage irrational of course it is <laughs> yeah the rational thing under any circumstance is to run <laughs> knowing that i guess the question that i'm really kind of, that we're kind of like kind of circling is understanding when courage is helpful yeah. and when courage needs to be restrained. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or making it clear to people who don't behave appropriately during a pandemic that the behavior that they're exhibiting is not courageous. It may feel mm. courageous and come from the same psychological place 
as wartime courage, but it's not. It's and I this has been my one of my frustrations with the messaging around things like vaccination um, in this country is that it's been too much about the self and not enough about society. Mm. The argument should be very simple. When we say to someone, you should get vaccinated, the wrong argument is you should get vaccinated because it could save your life. Most people, are, they're not, they, they have a remote misattitude about that. It's like saying you should leave London because it'll save your life. No, I'm not leaving London. This is my home. The right answer is you have an obligation to other people who are more vulnerable than you to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, I was thinking this the other day that the single most powerful thing that I read about the reason to get vaccinated were, the, were these personal testimonies from nurses who were describing what they've been through working in uh, intensive care units during COVID, that seeing people die day in, day out, working in these insane shifts, being mm-hmm. completely burnt out, we are asking of people who, you know, at the at the not the bottom of the of the healthcare food chain, but pretty close to it, we're asking them to perform these unbelievably heroic acts. And if you don't get vaccinated, you're making the life of this group of unbelievably heroic people a whole lot harder. Why would you do that? Right? That's the argument. Right, so mm-hmm. just take it off the plane of let's acknowledge these people feel invulnerable. Yes, you feel invulnerable. Fine, it's not about that though. It's about you're making someone else's life miserable, and that's not what we do when we're in a civilized society. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency, Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat.
As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Can you think of some examples of times where communities successfully went from I to we in ways that we can learn from in, in trying to do that in this moment now? Yeah. Well, there's a bunch of examples, but one simple one would be one of the things that turns the corner on smoking is the introduction of the idea of the dangers of secondhand smoke. Mm-hmm. We've been telling the smoker for a generation that they're endangering their own life. And we had very limited success in getting people to stop smoking under those circumstances. And then the conversation shift, and we literally stopped talking about, not talking exclusively about the smoker. And we started talking about the people around the smoker. And it became a matter of collective responsibility, Mm. right? I'm old enough to remember when you could smoke in the back of an airplane. They had a smoking section in the back of an airplane. That stopped not because we were trying to prolong the lives of the people smoking in the back of airplanes, but because everyone said, oh, wait a minute, what about all the non-smokers? It's about creating a safe environment and congenial environment for them. That was a huge shift and really successful because, you know, it was a way of reaching smokers and to say, you can smoke, but you can't smoke in the back of the airplane. They may have felt invulnerable when it came to the individualized risks because most smokers do not die of Lung cancer, a lot too, but not most of them, right? So it's for most people, it's a pretty remote miss category. Do you think that that messaging is the only way to truly win the war during this pandemic? Because again, knowing the majority of us have experienced remote misses, mm-hmm. but now we're all making personal decisions as to how we're going to engage with the community yeah. and how we're going to be protective of those around us. So I guess the big greater question I'm, I'm asking is, how do we take this information and use it to end the war on COVID. <laughs> yeah. We stop. In the, the, to my mind, the great frustrating thing in public discourse in this country around a whole series of issues is we've fallen so in love with the language of personal freedom and responsibility that we've forgotten the power of collective appeals to community. We don't use that language anymore. No one ever says, it's not about you, it's about it's about your service to others, right? It's mm-hmm. like the, 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 I mean, since we're being churchy today, the whole, <laughs> the whole message 
of the New Testament of is about like you do unto others as you would have them do unto. I mean, they, not even the New Testament, the Old Testament too. The whole message is about some awareness of your place in a community, right? It's mm-hmm. not about you. That is the single most powerful, you know, message in human history. And we've like we suddenly get into these arguments where it's well, one side saying, well, it's my personal choice and freedom. And the other person, the other side is saying, well, you need to be a rational actor. Stop with the eyes already. Like enough with I. I love it. I love it, Ronald, when we get churchy. Let's get churchy every time we do these. (laughs) Yeah, don't mess with me, man. I'll come to you with scripture every time, man. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm the one who quotes Uh, scripture, not you. I was waiting for you to come back at me. I'm like, I'm doing, (laughs) low do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I, I got crickets on your end. Malcolm, thank you so much for being with us again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Ronald. Always a pleasure. Malcolm Gladwell is the author of David and Goliath and the co-founder of Pushkin Industries. He also hosts one of our sister podcasts here at Pushkin, Revisionist History, available everywhere you get podcasts. And you should check out his new audiobook, The Bomber Mafia. Solvable is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Research by David Ja. Booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Sasha Mathias. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. I'm Ronald Young Jr. Thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.